It's great to sing with you today. Thank you so much for being here to encourage each other, for your faithful giving to the Lord, for your desire to hear from his word. It's a great privilege to be among you. I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we continue in our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. uh, And we're seeing again and again and again uh, some perspective-altering realities as it relates to our weakness and God's power and the nature of eternal destiny. And as we begin this morning, I want to describe what I call a cancer that is spreading through our culture at a rampant pace. This is a cancer of the mind. It's a cancer of perspective. It's a cancer of desire. And when cancer spreads, whether it's cancer in the physical form of a human body or cancer in this way of thinking through a culture, if nothing is there to stop the cancer, it will eventually completely take over the host and result in destruction. The cultural cancer that is running rampant through our culture today can be described as our love affair with the present time. I thought about calling it an infatuation, but I don't think that's nearly strong enough We live in a culture right now that is completely obsessed with the now, with the present. And this is manifested in a variety of ways. The first, of course, is a general disregard for history. When someone is in a conversation or trying to argue a point and a historical example is brought up in the discussion, you can almost see the collective eye roll that begins to happen and the condescending tone in retort. And as the reply comes, the successes and failures of thousands of years of history is dismissed as quickly as a warm breath on a cool autumn morning. And we know that when we don't consider history, we are bound to repeat its mistakes. But perhaps an even greater evidence of this love affair that our culture has with the present time is a waning, if not absent, regard for the future. We live for the moment. YOLO, you only live once. And we see that this, in fact, is probably the culture in the world, the country in the world, that has likely more money than any other nation in the history of this world, and yet we see a smaller percentage of that money being saved for the future than even a few generations ago when they had much less Our fixation on the present has changed the way that we parent children. It has changed the way that companies advertise. It has changed the way that education is taught. It has changed the landscape of politics. And we could list many other symptoms of this disease, but we need look no further than the fact that the biggest symptom, I think, of this culture of the present is the reality that fewer and fewer people are considering their death. And if you're not considering your death, then you're almost certainly not considering life 
after death. When we don't consider death, what are we left with? We're left with simply considering the present. (laughs) And when we consider the present, more often than not, our default becomes to pursue the things that are only beneficial in the present. Things like our comfort, things like our entertainment, things that will ultimately serve ourselves. But when you consider death and life after death, you become willing to risk the comfort of the present for something even greater that awaits. And so as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul is answering a question to these ends. He's saying, why should, why should I be willing to risk my life to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he's asking and answering the question for you and for me. Why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to risk my reputation for sharing the gospel? Why is it worth it to risk having my feelings hurt? If I'm rejected for sharing the gospel, why is it worth it for me or for anyone for that matter to pack up what I have, to leave the comforts of my home, to go to a land across the globe to a people that I've never met but who do not know the Lord Jesus in hopes that God will save them by forgiving them of their sins and granting them eternal life. Why is that worth it? Why is it worth it? to look at my life in a way that says I'm going to spend down my days with efforts to glorify God for the sake of the gospel, for the love of those who don't know Jesus. And when I die, I will have expended who I am and what I have for the Lord. Why is that worth it? Well, In chapter 4, he answers that question in one way. And in chapter 5, he's going to answer it in another few ways. In chapter 4, he answers it by saying this. In verse 17, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A weight of glory that far supersedes the difficulty of this temporary time. And in chapter 5, he continues with that thought by describing what we can call our eternal home. And so look with me as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1 and ending at verse 10. This is what he writes. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, and not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit 
as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body that we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul begins to answer the question by using the metaphor of a tent versus a building. This is a metaphor that we can all relate to in certain ways. And he is saying that our earthly home, which is found in this body of flesh that you live in and that I live in, it's like a tent. All tents have their purpose and all tents are fragile. They serve their purpose. This tent is designed to provide temporary shelter. It's not meant to be your home forever. Tents are built by hands and they consist of materials that will break down over a relatively short period of time. And our earthly bodies are like tents. Paul says that we know, not that we guess or that we surmise, but that we know that when this tent fails and we die, that we will have a building from God that is waiting for us in heaven. Of course, he's not talking about a literal building, that you will occupy a building. He's talking about your heavenly body that is awaiting you. These bodies are eternal They are built by God. And in contrast to a tent, the materials that these eternal bodies are made out of will be indestructible in their nature. So that will be your heavenly body, your heavenly home for your soul. And as you begin to think about that, what does it mean to have an indestructible, eternal body with the Lord forever? I mean, this could bring you onto all kinds of really fun rabbit trails of thought. For example, how old would that body be? What would be the age comparison? You ever thought about that? I think I probably think about that too much. What is another way to ask the question is, what is the perfect age of your human body? I think mine was 27. I wonder if some of you would probably say younger. Some of you might say older. What will you look like in this perfect body? And if you were 26 or 27, will you recognize each other? (laughs) I have no idea. And the scripture doesn't tell us. But we know one thing. We know that you have a building from God that awaits you. And so Paul says that right now, in this tent, in this body, verse two, we groan. Some of you feel that groan more than others, but all of you, as you go through your days, will experience the groaning of being in this temporary abode. Romans 8 tells us something about this groaning. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself groans, that we groan, and that the Holy Spirit 
also groans. Creation itself groans while it is awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, it says. And because this world has been subjected to corruption of sin and the futility of our sinfulness, that it awaits, the creation awaits the glory of the children of God to be revealed. And so it groans. Romans 8 also tells us that we groan because we are awaiting the full adoption of our bodies, the redemption of these bodies by the Lord. Romans 8 also tells us that the Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee that we will have a new home, a building from God, a new eternal body. If you are indwelt with the Spirit right now, then that is God's down payment for you in the future. And this Spirit groans in a way that is too deep for words to help us to pray when we don't know how to pray in this broken down tent. When difficulty or strife or we struggle to please God in the way that we want to in our witness, or we're too scared, the Spirit groans for us to God. And so verse 2 indicates that we groan. I wonder how many of you have ever been camping. I love camping. I love the idea of being in the outdoors, of being away from the busyness of life, out in nature, unplugged, and Everything seems to slow down when you're camping. Not glamping, but camping. There's a difference. Because the difference is this. When you're out in the wilderness somewhere, everything becomes much more elemental in its nature. You have to answer some really serious and basic questions. Questions like, how am I going to stay warm tonight? (laughs) Questions like, how am I going to be protected from the elements? Questions like, what am I going to eat out here in the wilderness for the time that I'm here and on down the line? But I think for most people who live in the West, the allure of camping is strong, but there is a reality that remains true, and that is this. Every time I go camping, it reminds me of how great my home is. Because after a while, my back hurts when I sleep on the ground or even on one of those air mattresses. And I'm not alone in probably saying that you get sick of the smell that fills the tent at night and you get sick of looking for sticks in the woods to keep the fire burning and you get sick of not catching any fish down at the lake in that lake that's supposed to have a lot of fish, at least so they say, and you get sick of looking at that sludge that is growing in your cooler as the ice is now melted away and you still have a couple days to go and you're trying to figure out how exactly you're going to do this or if you should still eat that. Perhaps worst of all, You get sick of living in a tent because when you wake up in the middle of the night to a severe rainstorm and you sort of look around with that nervous look and you say, okay, I I think we're good. And then you go back asleep for a few hours and then you feel it. You feel that water that is creeping in across the tent floor because it's cold and it wakes you up and you startle to wakefulness, and you look over and you realize that one of the people in the tent with you is sleeping up against the wall. And everybody knows you don't sleep up against the wall because that lets all the water in. And now everything and everyone is exposed to the weakness of the tent 
as they are wet. And in that moment, you long for home. (laughs) Friends, we have a great heavenly body to look forward to. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Of course, by all, he means all those who believe in the Lord Jesus. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is motivating us. He's not just describing our future reality so that you can have a knowledge of what will come next. He's telling us to motivate us to live a certain way in the present. Why can you be courageous in your gospel witness in a world where some will accept it but others will reject it? Because even if it costs you everything, something better awaits. A better home. Verses 6 through 8 point us to the fact that these heavenly bodies mean something beyond just themselves. They mean that we get to be with the Lord Jesus. And he is the one that we want to be with. It means that we can have courage in this life between this day and that. Look at verse 6. Let me read it again. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We're of good courage, Paul says. The example that Paul gives for this life is the example of good courage because of this good courage is focused on a future heavenly body, you too can be focused on that body. Your eternal future gives us courage in the present. And so I think about all the reasons why so many of us have a lack of vision for that eternal future, a lack of vision for heaven, an obsession with the present. And one of the primary reasons, I think, for people in the West is that our situation It's just overall really comfortable. The wealth of this moment leads to a true poverty of courage because we've lost the ability to conceive that there is anything better than this life. I want to say that again. There's a lot in there. The wealth of this moment leads to a true poverty of courage because we've lost the ability to conceive of anything better than what we already have. Anything better than this life. For his first sermon in elementary preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text describing the joys we'll share when Christ returns. 
and he ushers us to our heavenly home. He said, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and the cars and the clothing. I've listened to many sermons in church here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven because everyone has so much in this country. No one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, people have very little, so we preach about heaven all the time because we know how much we need it. And here's the greatest joy about heaven, Paul says. It's not that we'll be away from the groaning of creation. It's not that we'll be away from the groaning of our own bodies. It's not that we will have new, indestructible bodies. The greatest joy of heaven is that we will be with the Lord Jesus. He is the prize. He is the awe-inspiring, glorious servant king who died for us that we might live with him. We will experience in its full totality a type of love that we have not yet fully experienced. And do you know how much joy you feel when you experience that type of love? Of course you don't because you haven't experienced it yet. And you will have a type of love that you have never, ever experienced toward another being. And do you know how much joy you will experience as you output that kind of love to the Lord Jesus? You have but just a taste of it right now. And so Paul says it's better for us to be with him. I'd rather be dead, he says, because it means I can be with the Lord Jesus in my true home. But while we're still here, we walk by faith, not by sight. We will walk in good courage because our eternal future gives us courage in the present. So why should you have courage to share the gospel? Well, we've seen two positive realities. Heavenly bodies and being with the Lord Jesus. And that's related to what we talked about in chapter 4. A weight of glory that will be upon you. Paul gives us one more motivation for pleasing God with your life. And it's found in verses 9 and 10. It is the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to it again. Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here, Paul is referring to what is called the bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ for those who believe in him. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Pastor Nick, I thought that I would have no judgment if I put my faith in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that the point of my salvation? That all the bad things that I've done, all of the sin in my life will not ultimately be judged by God resulting in damnation, which is the just penalty for them. So why now do I see that I actually will be judged? Well, what we see here is a judgment that's not the judgment 
for heaven or hell. (laughs) This is a judgment that is based on our deeds. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Relief. (laughs) I don't have to, if I put my faith in Jesus, I don't have to look over my shoulder wondering if somebody is looking at the scales of good versus bad. Jesus' righteousness applies to you and it's great in its effect. So then what is this judgment for? Well, we see that this is the judgment for believers and it's also mentioned in Romans chapter 14, 10 through 12 and 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 4, 5. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says this. It says, therefore, we do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose all of the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So here's a few observations. All believers will stand in judgment before Christ as our judge. His judgment will be about deeds in this life. It'll be about the things that are seen and unseen by other people. He is the Lord. You cannot hide from him. He knows everything you think and everything you do. He will give a recompense or commendation for these deeds. And this judgment, as we said, will not lead to ultimate judgment or ultimate glory. It will be a judgment in which the worst possible outcome is a disappointing of our Lord. And the best possible outcome is receiving praise and honor from him. 1 John 2.28 says this. It says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The thought of being ashamed before the Lord in all of his glory as creation reaches its terminal conclusion and Jesus manifests his power and might and holiness in a way that you have not yet experienced. The thought of being ashamed before him on that day stops me in my tracks. It's a sobering thought for Paul. And it should be a sobering thought for you. I long to hear his words, well done, my good and faithful servant and to receive whatever honor or commendation Jesus chooses to give based on the way that you've lived your life right now on earth. And so what you do really matters. It matters to the Lord who sees it. The idea of putting your faith in Jesus and clicking cruise control until the day of your death 
is so far from the nature of any sort of definition of what it means to be a Christian in the Bible. What you do matters. It matters to the Lord. It matters to the people who desperately need him. What you do in fighting against sin matters. What you do in pursuing a relationship with the Lord matters. What you do to grow in your knowledge of him and your obedience to him matters. What you do in sharing the good news of the gospel that forgives sinners matters. It all really matters. And so, you can have courage because our eternal future gives us courage in the present. A moment ago, we said that Paul is not just giving this for you for mind candy about what is to come. Paul gives this to you with a very specific motivation so that you change the way that you live today from today until the day that you die or Jesus returns. I think of the movie Gods and Generals that follows the rise and fall of Civil War hero General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Jackson, of course, had many faults and yet he was a devout Christian and upon his call to report for duty and to lead the 1st Brigade of Virginia, which was called the Stonewall Brigade, Jackson and his wife read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text for today. And they prayed that God's will would be done. Again, in the early morning hours of July 21st, 1861, the day of the Battle of Manassas Junction, Jackson asked God that his will be done. In the early stages of the battle, things did not go well for the Confederates. In an attempt to rally the troops, someone yells to the men to look at Jackson standing like a stone wall. And suddenly, General Jackson, sitting erect in his saddle with cannon fire exploding all around him, his left hand wounded from a musket ball, begins to rally his men. Stunningly brave, he paces back and forth on his horse across the front line, shouting orders to charge as musket balls pierce the air. And at the end of the day, General Jackson and his captain returned to the battlefield to survey the loss. 111 Confederates dead, 373 missing. Wearied and saddened, Jackson kneels beside a dead soldier with Captain James Smith. And Captain Smith asks, General, how is it that you can keep so serene and stay so utterly insensible with a storm of shells or bullets around your head. And Jackson replies, Captain Smith, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in the battle as I do in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that but to always be ready whenever it may overtake us. If this was the way of all men, then all men would be equally brave. Friends, 
we're almost home. This isn't it. A better home is coming. Press hard. Have good courage. Serve the Lord with great vigor. We're almost home. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, give us the ability to look past the present. Give us the ability to overcome the desire to serve ourselves. Give us the ability to glimpse into our eternal future. And in a time where courage seems to be failing, embolden us because of that future, we pray. We thank you for the home that awaits. We long to see our Savior face to face. We love him. We desire him. And we desire to be home. Until that day, help us in good courage to walk by faith and not by sight. Amen.